I'd also like to welcome you, praise the Lord, both those of you who are here, especially if you're new here, and uh, those of you watching on Living Word Live, praise the Lord. Let's join our hearts in prayer, amen? Come on now, let's all pray. Everybody, all over the room, let's pray. You don't have to even listen to me, let's just all pray. You can speak right out loud to the Lord, because we're going to pray that God have his way with his word this morning, amen? So let's all pray, join our hearts, hallelujah. Oh, Father God, we look to you from our hearts. Oh, Lord, you are our great God. Oh, Lord, and you have given us the gift of your word. And, oh, Lord, we appreciate it. And we ask for your help, guidance, and grace this morning as we look to you, as we look to your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Praise God. So this morning will be a little bit different because I'm going to cover two topics that are, you know, both from the Word of God, but they're really not that closely related to each other, a, a very much a two-part, uh, well, two messages this morning instead of one. Of course, the challenge will be that I don't overdo it on the first one and then leave myself no time for the second one. Uh, one of the messages is going to, the first message is going to be about the one another ministry ministry to one another as we see it in the word of God. And the second one is going to be a a New Testament, a New Testament position on Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay, so let's start off in our Bibles with uh, talking about the one another ministry. And let's go to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I've been sharing this verse repeatedly, both with Big Church and with the Leadership Seminar for the last, well, more than two years, two and a half years, I think. Romans 15, 14, it says, and I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Now, Paul had really been around. I think I'm a junior minister of the gospel compared to the Apostle Paul. He had been to many communities, many churches, and served the Lord for many years. And he was not just a simpleton or an idealist, But he told the Roman church, even though he did not pioneer the church of Rome, and in fact, when he wrote them this letter, he had not yet been to Rome. But he believed not only in the Lord, but he believed in them as well. That's what I've been telling the church for two and a half years, I think. And... It's not just a matter of a compliment to them, it's also a challenge to them. He's challenging them, and I'm going to challenge you in the, in the first message that I have for you this morning. You, right here at Living Word Church, I'm talking about the core of the church. Maybe you're relatively new here, and we don't know you that well yet. Well, let me give you that too. Let me give you that 
we're going we're to believe in you too. But I know that the core here has the right motives. That's what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says you're full of goodness. And I also know you have effective knowledge. He comes to a conclusion then. So admonish one another. One another ministry. A challenge. Let's think for a second what he means by admonishing one another. I think admonishing is a little stronger than a pat on the back and a little weaker than a rebuke. Somewhere in between a pat on the back and a rebuke. That's what admonishing is. It's the uh, Greek word uh, nuthetao, nuthetao, and it means to urge, to urge in a serious and sober matter. It's life-changing instruction. He told the Roman church, you guys are capable of giving life-changing instruction to one another. And I want to say that to you too, Living Word Church. You are capable of giving life-changing instruction to other people and to one another. Can I hear an amen on that? Who agrees with me? Praise the Lord. I think two and a half years ago, I said who would say who agrees with me, and we'd have like two hands go up, and now we have like 22. (laughs) Or maybe more like 202. You're capable of giving life-changing instructions. Now this comes from Romans 15. In the whole big letter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul takes a turn in Romans chapter 12. Before Romans chapter 12, he's talking about theology. And he's talking about salvation by faith. But in Romans chapter 12, he starts talking about practical concerns and how to live out a Christian life. How to do it. What Christian life looks like in practice. He begins that in Romans chapter 12. Like I said, how do you live out salvation by faith? What is the practice of a Christian once he believes? And you'll see, beginning in Romans chapter 12 and on to the end of this book, that the Apostle Paul refers many times to the one another ministry. In fact, he refers to it at least seven different times, more than any other book of the New Testament, all located from chapter 12 on. Now that you have come to Christ by faith, undertake a one another ministry. Look, for instance, at Romans chapter 15, verse 7, a few verses up. It says, Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Receive one another. One another includes all Christians. Don't reject a Christian. Don't strong arm him. Don't stiff arm him. Receive him. Like Jesus repeatedly taught. He repeatedly said, for instance, in John 13, 34, a new commandment give I unto you that ye love, what is the next two words? One another. That ye love 
one another. Christ taught a one another ministry. Hallelujah. All of these statements about the one another ministry, oh man, I bet it's going to get really quiet this morning. One another, well, I like the one part. I'll love one, this one, or that one. I'll minister to this one or that one. But when it says one another, it breaks down the discernment factor and we're to love without so much discernment. One another. Receive one another. Love one another. All of these statements are made to mixed crowds. They're mixed from rich to poor. They're mixed from cultured people to backward people, educated people to ignorant people, different nationalities, different languages, different backgrounds, races, religions, levels of progress in Christ. Different personalities love one another. We're not allowed to, as Christians, to take a one another ministry and say, I'm going to love and serve these, but I'm not going to love and serve those. Galatians 5.13 says, by love, serve one another. Ephesians 4.32 says, but be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. Oh, wow. That really, that really adds clarity. You might have a quarrel with somebody. What are you supposed to do? Forgive them. Be patient with them. Be patient with one another. Be forgiving toward one another because you might have a quarrel with somebody. The, quarrels, the quarrel is small potatoes. The quarrel is small potatoes compared to the mission of the body of Christ to move together and give glory to God and win souls to Christ forever. Your quarrel is so temporary. But souls are so eternal. Amen? Christ had all Jewish apostles. But he did not send them to only Jewish people. Right? Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus tells his apostles, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Judea is the province, kind of like a state. That, and Jerusalem was a city located within it. Like Syracuse is located within New York State, Jerusalem was located in Judea. So Jesus says, you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem city. Jude, all of Judea, the state... Then he goes on and he says, in Samaria. Samaria was not Jewish. In fact, Samaria was offensive to Jerusalem and Jewish people. The Samaritans were considered religious mongrels and compromisers. 
Jesus said, I want you to go to them. They're not like you. They're a despised people. It is not a thing that Jewish people will do typically, but Jesus himself won a woman to the Lord at a well in Samaria who then went and proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah to her whole town, and many people in the town came to Jesus. They're considered mongrels, mixed breed, offensive, disgusting. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jewish people. Judea, Jewish people. Samaria, oh, Samaria, ugh. And then he says, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Am I telling the truth? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Everyone. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. The Apostle Paul says, I've been a good example to you in this area, even as we do. In fact, the Apostle crossed barrier after barrier with the gospel never compromising the gospel, always being true and faithful to the gospel, but crossing many barriers with it in order to bring souls from every location and every kind and every background to the Lord, to heaven. We might say, well, yeah, of course, he was called to it. He received a special call. Oh, he did. No question, but here, in, in, if you want to turn to it, what, did, what was the exact verse? Let me, write, let me uh, remind you. First Thessalonians 3.12. If you want to turn there, you should. Why wouldn't you? because you're a little resistant already? Because your arms are folded? You're too, your arms are folded too tight to turn pages in your Bible? No, 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 don't do that. Toward all men, even as we do toward you. The apostle is talking to a local church here. So he was called to a special call as an apostle, and he broke barriers with the gospel. He went to Asia. He went to Greece. He went to Rome. He just went further and further with the gospel. The people in Greece were different from the people in Judea. The people in Rome were different than the people in Greece. There was big-time cultural background, national challenges. But here he's telling a local church. They're called to do it too. He said, just as we have done. And 
he's telling the local church in their local context to increase and abound in love toward all men. Those who are your kind and those who are not your kind. I pray that Living Word Church will, in a sense, reflect the population makeup of Onondaga County. I think we should. We should have lots of poor people in the church and lots of uh, our black brothers and sisters and our brown brothers and sisters and our white brothers and sisters and our rich brothers and sisters. Not too many of them. Uh, Poor brothers and sisters, lots of them. First Peter 4.9, if you'll turn there, First Peter 4.9. This is the one another ministry. Praise God. You know, this is your chance, brothers and sisters. This is your chance. Now's your chance. Now's your time to serve the Lord in a wonderful way. Hallelujah. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, the the many-faceted grace of God. Use hospitality. Have people over your house. Open the door to them. Put Put a cup of coffee in front of some people without grudging. We have in our church many home fellowships. It is to honor these very verses. Romans 15, 14, the top, at the top of the list. Uh, every week in close to 30 homes scattered around Onondaga County, every week someone is cleaning their home, giving it a quick vacuum, wiping up a little bit of dust, shaking out a rug, making a few refreshments, studying a lesson plan, the lesson planned for that week that I give them, keeping their little group, their little fellowship informed about what's going on, times, places, organizing, communicating, prepping, arranging for the worship on that given night, trying to absorb the lesson first so that then they can turn around and give it. They're thinking and praying to nurture the people within their home fellowship. More and more people in our church have been given a chance to lead, mentor, disciple other people. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, he said. Our church has over 50 home fellowship leaders. 50, more than 50. We have close to 50 assistants. It's quite a project. And I told you, um, when we started it, it's going to be a big part of what we do. If you opt out, I said, if you want to opt out, that you're, of course, you're welcome to do that, and it's not going to turn you into a second-class citizen here. I think we've pretty well honored that commitment. And we have to realize, when I say you can opt out, we can opt out of anything. We can opt out of church. 
I mean, it's in a way, it's not saying anything. What it's saying is, we're not going to kick you out of church if you don't, if you don't uh, join a home fellowship. We're still going to serve you, love you. And I, I'll tell you, what is going on in the home fellowships is so big. It's so important. It's so important of the ministry of this church to its members now. I could just about beg those of you who have opted out, many of which I have known for longer than anybody else in the church. You're, you're largely, you're the older people in the church, and you, I feel like I could just about beg you. If you're not joining at, after two years of this because you'd be ashamed to, let me say to you, I'm not too ashamed to beg. I beg you, join. Just put, just put all, the, all the questions aside. Just get in there and help. We, we, we don't need you, but I want to tell you, you have something to give. And we miss what you have to give. We're going to go on with or without you, but we could go on better with you. Amen. As the church grows, as Living Word Church grows in numbers, we'll need more home fellowships. And to be honest with you, we're there. We're there. Ask Brother Adam and Sister Tori, who manned the welcome desk. We have a lot of new people at Living Word Church that are asking to be members of home fellowships as they should. It's a big part of what we do. You're going to get a lot of instruction in the Word of God during home fellowships. We've done units on triune man that was very challenging because it was presented a little differently than what you're used to. Uh, The Trinity... We've done whole books of the Bible in some cases, like the book of Ephesians, because it, it communicates so effectively the changed life in Christ. We've done a unit on how to witness to people by doing the Romans road out of the book of Romans. And we're, a lot of our brothers and sisters are in a unit on overcoming. I would just love for every single brother and sister in this church to have the benefit of these topics. Hallelujah. It's good. Well, we could use five more home fellowships. Bada bing, bada bang. I'm talking now. We could use five more. New people want to be a part. Now, if you think about it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be best to take all the new people that would like to join a home fellowship and start a new home fellowship with just them. The thing to do is move people around a bit. Have a couple people from one home fellowship join a new home fellowship that also includes some new people. So that it is, you know, two-thirds or three-quarters old people and one-quarter or one-third new people. That will, do a, that will do a good service to those new people that want to join those home fellowships. Just, just last Sunday, we had a, a family of five say, we want to go to a home fellowship. Brother Adam is having to call the leaders and say, Can, do you have a room for five? And they say, oh man, we don't. We're all full. How, another call. Do you have room for five? Oh, no, we don't. We're all full. Do you have room for five? No. 
do you have room for five? Yeah, sure, send them over. Yeah, but do you want to know more about them? No, I want them to come. But you don't know them at all. That's all right, send them. And we'll serve them. And they'll serve us too. It's not just about being a spectator. It's about being a participant. It's a one another ministry. It's one another. So we're going to have to rearrange some of our existing home fellowships. We're not going to dismantle. We're going to move some people around. Do we see what good is coming in our church as a result of breaking up some of the old root-bound relationships? You know, you have a plant in a pot and it becomes root-bound. It stops growing. It stops producing fruit. It will even perhaps die. You got to take it out of the small pot. You got to break it up and give it room to grow. We are doing that in our church. We're doing that, breaking up some of the old root-bound structures that just evolved over time. And look what's happening. The church grows. Hallelujah. I think it's worth celebrating. Praise God. The last thing we want to do is handicap ourselves by becoming root-bound all over again. This time, root-bound in our particular home fellowships. We made a lot of concessions to the members of our church when we started home fellowships. We let you stay together with people that you felt comfortable with if you were not courageous enough and, and uh, driven enough to, to join with the people that you didn't know yet. In many cases, we let you join with people that you were already comfortable with. And I would say that personal comfort was probably the number one factor why people chose the home fellowship that they did. But many people in our church, especially those more than 50 leaders and assistants that I referred to, they were very willing to go beyond comfort, beyond comfort to serve. You might say they were up for the adventure. Are you members of Living Word Church growing? Are you growing and abounding in love toward one another? I'm here to back up those leaders, those home fellowship leaders this morning. The mission of the home fellowship program is to produce more mature Christian servants. Ask the elders. Whenever there's a, you know, a, a little quarrel rises up in a home fellowship, a little, a little uh, uh, irritation or a little, a little bit of a, a problem rises up, I always say to the elders, yes, now I get to earn my pay. And I say, yes, because this is the kind of stuff we have to work our way through in order to grow not just avoiding it to keep a quiet and comfortable life, but to work with it and deal with it. Amazingly, in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says, I will not contend with man forever. God, the Almighty, contends with us. Because to be in a relationship 
is work. To be in a relationship has its tense moments. To be in a relationship requires humility. Hallelujah. Forgiveness. Patience. Just like the Bible said. Members of existing home fellowships will need to move. Are you ready for it? Can you do it? Oh, now I'm really devoted to my group now. I'm, my group is my thing. I, just, I, I have to be with my home fellowship now. I'm, I've gotten comfortable with them and, and I've gotten close to them. Well, don't ever stop being close to them. But you could be, now's your time. Now's your chance. You could be a help to creating that same experience for people who have not had it yet. How wonderful is this opportunity? We can't simply get comfortable again, brothers and sisters. I had it on my heart for many years, even before we started home fellowships, that this would take a good six years to get the home fellowship program really operating uh, like the Lord would be pleased. And I must say, I usually underestimate the time, the, the time that is required for a project. Uh, I've, I've gotten kind of used to my underestimating the time, and so I usually double it. Twelve years. What? We've already been doing it for two. Yeah, I know. There are a number of challenges to overcome. One of the challenges was just starting. Wow. I looked forward to starting it and thinking to myself, how in the world are we going to start it? Wow! The Lord said, just start it. That's what he said to me. Just start it. And wow, we did it. We started it. It's going. We're doing it. Second, we had to figure out what do you do in a home fellowship? Well, we're doing stuff in home fellowships, but we have a lot to figure out still. We're getting better and better at what we should do at our home fellowships. That is one of the primary topics that we work on at leadership seminar. We have a leadership seminar once a month now. At the beginning, we had it once every two weeks. Now we have it once a month because we're going. We still, have a, we still have things to learn and we're working on it. What do you do during a home fellowship? Leaders are still learning and growing. Lots of questions still come up. Third is the challenge of creating and sustaining a curriculum. If I have a heart attack later this afternoon, I've been making all the curriculum. We've got we've to have some depth here, and we've got to create some succession so that when I have my heart attack one afternoon, that somebody else is, you know, or many are just going to keep on making curriculum or, or accessing curriculum that's already been made for us. But fourth, a big challenge that I think could take six years and more is for the whole church to accept and learn and deal with flexibility. This is going to be challenging for us and especially for this church, but I imagine for any church. What do I know? At flexing, bending, and changing, we have to get comfortable not with staying put but comfortable with flexing, bending, and changing. 
We need the experience of some home fellowships discontinuing. We had, in the last two years, home fellowship leaders come and begin to talk to us. In fact, I offered it to them. If you think this is not for you, we've been doing this a while now. What did you know about what you were getting into? You didn't know exactly what you're getting into any more than I did. You might think, you know, after this, it's just not for me. I invite you to back out. No criticisms attached. No stigma attached. Why? I looked forward to that, actually, brothers and sisters, because we've got to learn how to do that as a church. To make changes for people to go in and for people to come out of ministries and leadership positions. We've got to learn how home fellowships can grow and get bigger and divide and become two different home fellowships. We've already done it a few times, and believe me, it has created emotional, more than anything else, emotional challenges. We've got to get used to it. We're ministers of the gospel. We're, it's the priesthood of all believers that is at work here. Are you hearing me? We've got to get used to home fellowships dividing. We've got to get used to adding some. We've got to get used to leaders bowing out. We've got to get used to adding more leaders. We've got to get used to assistants becoming leaders. We've got to get used to regular members of home fellowships becoming leaders. We've got to get used to all these changes. It's very dynamic. To somebody it might look chaotic. It's not chaotic. Believe me, this thing called the Home Fellowship Program, is overseen by the church elders. We're watching it. It is not a free-for-all. Not by a long shot. And never will be, Lord willing. But it's a blessing. It's dynamic. It has a life of its own. We've got to learn that. So we're not just dead religion. Dead liturgy. Always do the same thing. All the time periods are the same. All the activities are the same. The order of operations is always the same. Brothers and sisters, we used to mock that in the early years of our church. And you know what? We became it a little bit. We've got to learn flexibility. We've got to learn change. We've got to learn spontaneity. Hallelujah. We can add five home fellowships right now. We could use them. But it's, I'm preaching about this this morning in the One Another ministry to get all of you ready for it. We've got to look for people who are willing already. After only two years, you're already willing to, oh, I'll go to another one. I could serve the Lord at another one. I could help some people at another one. Move me. Move me to another one. Put me wherever, wherever you think, Brother Brian, elders. Put me wherever you think I'll be uh, uh, the best asset to some people in Christ. We're going to have to add some new people to well-established home fellowships. But some of the old people are going to have to go elsewhere. We can't allow home fellowships to get too big. Some of them are already way too big. 
What happens when they get too big is people hide, people are quiet, they just drift into the background and don't participate anymore. If a home fellowship is about anything, it's about everybody who's there participating. I think that's why some of you haven't joined a home fellowship, because you're scared of needing to participate. Or because the level of participation is beneath you at your high level of Christian achievement. Hear the tone of my voice. If you have been a member of a home fellowship and think have watched your leader, and you've come to the conclusion, I think I can do that. I think I can lead. I think I can be an asset and a blessing to a group of people. I think I can follow the lessons. I think I can be an asset. Please contact me, and I will offer an intensive course in home fellowship leading every two weeks for six to eight weeks, depending on how you get it, how it clicks for you. We'll do it at a time when the applicants can, make, can do it. I'll make myself available. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do all of our speaking, encouraging, edifying, and admonishing from a lectern with a microphone. We have to do it face-to-face, close to one another. Amen? We have to share with one another. Share your wisdom. Share your testimonies. Ask for help. Confess your faults. I routinely confess my faults to home fellowships. We have a rule. I think we're doing a great job of honoring it. It is what is said in home fellowship stays in home fellowship. I have not, to my recollection, you tell me if I'm wrong, one time used what is going on in home fellowships as sermon material. I'm not going to do it. I'm determined not to do it. What goes on in home fellowship stays in home fellowship. You have revelations that you've discovered in God's Word that you can share. You could tell how God used His Word to get you through your trials. You don't have to be best buds with everybody in your home fellowship. And in fact, it's probably best that you're not best buds. You might become best buds. And then you might go to another home fellowship and become best buds with somebody else. I know, I know some of the, you know, wisdom of those who have become a bit cynical and jaded about the human race. Some people talk too much. I don't like this home fellowship thing because some people talk too much. It's so nice and tidy at Living Word Church when Brother Brian uses his big loud voice and everybody else except for Sister Kathy is absolutely silent. I refer to her commenting last week that I have never made the sauce. I made it once. I know some people talk too much. We know it's a problem, but let's not just run away from it. What about the patience part 
of the one another ministry? What about the forbearance part? What about the kindness part? What about the forgiving part? Try to teach people to listen. Encourage the quiet ones to come forward and take their place. Quiet ones need to learn about sharing their faith and sharing Christ. We know some people are hyper-spiritual. Home fellowships are just going to give them a chance to be hyper-spiritual. Oh, come on. We've been around. We know that. We know some people are hyper-spiritual. Let's have home fellowships deal with it instead of just avoid it and stiff-arm people. Let's teach them to calm down a little bit. We know some people are over-needy. Some people are always in a crisis, always asking for help, always needy, always panicking, always afraid. We know. Can't we help them to grow into maturity? Do we just leave them off to the side as untouchables? That's not the Christian thing to do. A lot of people in our church went years without witnessing to anybody and maybe never even won a soul to Christ. We've got to shatter that tendency. We've got to destroy that that pattern and get people talking about their faith and about the Lord. Amen? And there's a lot more talking about our faith since we started Home Fellowships. Someone should confide in you. Someone should come to you for help who doesn't know the Lord yet or who is not churched. Someone should come to you and learn to trust you. And home fellowships will bring you along so that you could better minister to someone needy. I've stated a goal that each home fellowship will bring two new people into the church per year. In the first year, some of them did it and some of them didn't. In the second year, other ones did it and some of them didn't. In the second year, some brought in their third and their fourth ones to the church. Look, this is no question, this is challenging. This isn't just a matter of make a pronouncement and then it happens. A lot of brothers and sisters are putting a lot of work into this. Amen? You know, I I don't really want to share my testimonies and my stories with you time after time. I want, number one, I want to learn more about Jesus and his stories. Number two, I want you guys to share your stories with each other. God has done a mighty work in your life. Tell about the mighty work that God has done in your life. Begin by telling it in a comfortable, sheltered environment of a home fellowship. You hear these great short testimonies on Living Word live on our website. Brother Tom Leaders just uh, was published. Little five to seven minute long testimonies. All of you have a five to seven minute long testimony that you could share. Every one of you has one to share. So, get ready. Move things around a little bit. I'm encouraging you to get ready to be flexible. Come forward if you think, I could be a leader. I think I could be a leader. And we'll see what we can do about that. Um, Assistance, 
get ready to step up and be, and be the one on, on whose shoulders the home fellowship rests. Big home fellowships, get ready to divide and make two home fellowships out of one. Get ready. This is the kind of flexibility I think might take us six years to learn. It might take us 12 years to learn. We have a lot to learn. And it's all going to be to the good. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go to topic number two. Totally different topic. Ready to switch gears? I know this is different, but I felt like I didn't want to leave one of these aside because they're both so current. I want to share with you a New Testament view of modern Israel in the, it, along with the concept of the infallible compass that the Lord presents to us to keep us on track and headed where he wants us to go. I love Israel as much as any of you. I have been there five times. I have been to the most northern reach of it at the border of Lebanon and the friendly fence, and I've been to the most southern reach of it to the city of Eilat, and my wife and I went skin diving in the Red Sea. I've, been dri- I've driven through the desert, and I've driven through the hills and the forests. I've learned Hebrew and studied the nation of Israel more than most. Would you go to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and verse 1? I have learned probably nothing about Israel, the Jews, the Holocaust, any of these things by watching YouTube videos. Sorry. You might know all you know by watching YouTube videos. I don't, I don't even know if I've watched one. I read books. John 14, 1 says, Let your heart not be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me, says Jesus. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know. In the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The infallible compass leads us to a place. The Bible is a book of place. We're headed to a place. The place is where the Father is. The place is where the Son is. Jesus said, I go. I leave this place to prepare a place for you. That is the place you want to get to. Where does the infallible compass of the Word of God point? To a place. Christianity is a place-focused faith. To the place that Jesus prepares for his people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He cried over Jerusalem, but he prepared a place for his people elsewhere. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Because Jerusalem and Jesus hit a fork in the road and each went down its separate direction. Jesus went this way. 
And that's where the place is that our infallible compass will lead us to. He told the thief next to him on the cross, today you will be with me where? In Jerusalem? In the temple? In the Holy of Holies? No, he said, in paradise. A place that is not of this world. In John 16, 28, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father, and I am come into the world. I leave the world and go to the Father. This is not a Christian thing to say, to think, to feel, or promote. Kill the Palestinians. That is not a Christian goal, attitude. Oh, you say, yeah, amen, brother, but I have had Christian brothers tell me that's what should be done. Kill the Palestinians. Nuke them. Man, woman, and child like Joshua did. That is not a Christian view of the nation of Israel or the Palestinian problem. Thank God we're not Joshua. We're not living in the time of Joshua. The New Testament is our book, not the old. Jesus is our leader, not Joshua. Can I hear an amen? I do not obsess over God's promises of land to Abraham, Joshua, Moses, about the boundaries of the Holy Land. I don't obsess over it. Why? One, Jesus didn't. Two, Paul didn't. And I want to tell you, Jesus and Paul knew so much more about the Old Testament and the promises of God that you will never compete with them. You will never come to their level. Best just to follow them. Just follow them. Don't try to make your own way. Israel has had to wait now 4,000 years for the promises of God in reference to land boundaries. They have had to wait 4,000 years for the promises to be fulfilled. They will simply need to wait a little longer. What's the big deal, in a sense? They'll probably have to wait until Jesus comes again. Why do I fully support Israel? I do. I fully support Israel in their struggle against Hamas. Not because of the land promises that God made to Abraham. That is not the reason why I fully support them. I fully support them. I'm going to give you four reasons. One, because the people of the Jewish ethnic group must. It is imperative for them to have their own land where they can defend themselves against thousands of years of anti-Semitism in the world. It is the only way to avoid another genocide, another pogrom, another holocaust, is for the Jewish people to have their own land where they can defend themselves as they are. It's an imperative. It must be. Second reason. Israel 
contrary to what a lot of people think, did not steal the Holy Land. In the latter half of the 19th century, in the first half of the 20th century, they bought it. They bought it a parcel at a time from Arabs who saw their land as worthless. They bought it when the land had not been taken care of. They bought every inch of it that they could get their hands on. And then they turned the fortunes of that land around. They built on it. They drained it. They irrigated it. And they made it something beautiful. And all of a sudden, people were wondering, why did we sell this? In 1947, the United Nations approved a practically indefensible boundary between Israel and Palestine. So crooked and so windy that no no one could ever defend such a windy boundary. They did that after a study of the locations where Jewish people lived and where Palestinian people lived. But Israel was attacked immediately in their war of independence. And as a result of that war and other wars that they have fought through the 20th century, they established for themselves a better boundary, a more defensible boundary. Such are the the fruits of war. Such is the loot of war. They weren't attacked. I'm sorry. They didn't attack. They were attacked. They fought on the defensive. With the possible exception of the Six-Day War, I understand. My third reason is that Israel continues, albeit imperfectly, I know they're not doing it perfectly, to act in a defensive posture. They're acting in a neighborly posture with the nations that surround them as the nations around them finally concede that Israel as a nation exists. Peace treaties have been signed between Israel and Jordan, between Israel and Egypt. They're trying to get along with their their neighbor nations in a defensive, peaceful way. Example, their invitation to the people of Gaza to get out of the north of Gaza because an invasion is coming. Get out so that non-combatants' lives are protected. Are you hearing me still? I died. I'm back. You're not opposed to me, are you, Mike? I, I knew you weren't. That's okay. Thank you. Their willingness to let humanitarian aid come to their enemies. This is typical Israel. This is their typical operating procedure. My fourth reason for supporting unequivocally Israel in their struggle against Hamas comes from the New Testament, the New Testament scripture. I'm a New Testament preacher. Are you a New Testament follower of Christ? Don't don't give so much weight to the Old Testament. Those days are over. Take your direction from Jesus and Paul and Peter and James. New Testament scripture, if you would go there and I'll end with this this morning. Romans 15, 25.
says, But now I go to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. He's talking about money. Uh, churches in Greece took up collections that the Apostle Paul would bring to the poor saints in Jerusalem who could not even feed themselves because persecution was so heavy on them in Jerusalem. Verse 27 says, It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. I feel, do you, a great debt to Abraham. Great debt to the the first Jew, the first Hebrew, Abraham. Don't you? Don't you have a debt to feel a debt to him and how he showed us the way of faith? I feel a debt to Moses. I feel a debt to all the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. He wasn't Italian. He wasn't a Roman Catholic. He was Jewish. All of the apostles were Jewish. They were all followers of Moses and Abraham. Don't you feel a, de- a, a load of debt to the Jewish people for producing our Savior? Our Savior came from them. Our apostles came from them. I feel a great debt to the Jewish people for providing for us our Savior. And I know God provided our Savior, but he used the Jewish people, didn't he? And the Apostle Paul said the Greeks feel a great debt to you in Jerusalem because Christianity started with you guys. It started in Jerusalem. We'll do everything we can in the natural to support Jerusalem and Judea because our Savior and our apostles came from there. That's why, according to the New Testament, I feel dedicated to the nation of Israel. I feel indebted to that nation for providing Jesus to the world. Hallelujah. In regards to Abraham and the land promise, I want you to recall that Hebrews 11 points out the great faith of Abraham was not expressed in his claiming of the land promises. But his great faith was shown by his confession that he was a stranger and a pilgrim in the earth. He didn't go about the Holy Land saying, God has given me this, and God has given me that, and God has given me, and God has given me. He went to the sons of Hath and he said, I'm a stranger and a sojourner with you. May I please borrow, I'm sorry, buy a cave, a place in which to bury my wife in this land. That's the Christian way. That's how to be a Christian. To remember that you are a sojourner in this world. You are a pilgrim in this world. There is no land in this world that you should be so worried about. Because you seek a land whose building is made by God, whose foundation is made by God. It's the place Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Where my Father is, there will you be. Where I am, there will you be. I go to that place. Hallelujah. Now they desire a better country that is an heavenly 
Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city, a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to the earth. Amen? Hallelujah. Covered. Point two. So current. I feel like I, I want to get in there and make a position statement before all these gazillion voices on the internet get you all confused. We're not out to kill Palestinians. And to be honest, I don't think Israel is either, except for Hamas. The people of Gaza have made a grave, grave mistake in putting Hamas into their uh, into the position of governing them, and Hamas has made a grave, grave mistake in attacking Israel the way they did a, a couple weeks ago. Huge mistakes, and now Israel must respond. They must, and they must respond strongly. I pray that they res- respond with some restraint. They, they usually uh, do very well as far as I'm concerned. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In the name of Jesus, we pray for the guidance of the leaders of Israel. We pray for the guidance of the leaders of the United States of America and the leaders of all the nations of the world that they would protect this people that have experienced persecution for thousands of years that they could have peace and live their own lives. And, O Lord, we thank you so much that you have raised up Abraham and all the rest to give us our Savior, who was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. We praise your name and we call you Abba Father. We lean on you in this time of grave crisis in the world. In the name of Jesus, may everyone that is here count the cost and turn to you with all their hearts and serve you all their days. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Thank you for your attention.